Hey, Corey. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Um, I mean, we were just chatting right before I hit the record button, and you said it was 104 where you're at right now? Yeah, yeah. So we're like right in the foothills of Pasadena. It's been upper 90s, like hundreds for like the past week. It's, uh, it's, it's I guess it's summer. Yeah, I guess it is. I have friends that are in Phoenix and they're hitting like close to 120 as is Vegas. So it's pretty crazy. But um, hey, that's not what we're uh, here to talk about, though. Um, what I w did want to talk to you about was the future of the cloud um, and how to deploy secure best practice cloud infrastructure and some other topics related to that. Um, but before we jump into that, maybe we can just talk a little bit about your role at MassDriver and what is MassDriver? Yeah, so I'm, I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of MassDriver. It's a, it's a visual development platform for managing cloud infrastructure. So the goal is to kind of make it easy for software developers to draw infrastructure in the cloud, get infrastructure with security, best practices in place, uh, just from drawing something like you'd see on a whiteboard. Um, but the platform underneath is powered by a package manager. So what you're actually drawing is infrastructure that's been written by an actual person, somebody that has expertise in maybe... Aurora or expertise in networking. And so you're getting things that are actually written by somebody with expertise in there rather than having like AI just try to generate a config that you hope is compliant. Sure. Um, and who or what does your typical customer look like? Yeah, most of our customers today are, we got two that we're really seeing. So most of them are like earlier stage companies, like around their series A, five to 10 engineers. And they've kind of reached that point where they need to be SOC 2 compliant. Maybe they need to be HIPAA compliant. Um, they've either been running in like a platform as a service like Heroku or Vercel, and now they're trying to get into AWS. And so they've got this large burden in front of them, this migration that they're going to have to do. And then they're also thinking, do I hire my first ops engineer? And so kind of the goal of the platform is to let teams kind of push out that first ops hire, um, get them into the cloud, get them there so that when they do make that ops hire down the road, maybe two, three years from now, that ops person's walking into parity, infrastructure as code, IAM with principle of least privilege, you know, NIST and SIS benchmarks passing. So the ops person, when they are ready for one, can come in and add value instead of kind of digging through technical debt and looking for skeletons. Can you walk me through like a, a typical conversation that you would have with, uh, with one of these early stage startups? Yeah, so I mean, they're... We have a we've we've got a very lucky sales pipeline today. Uh, mm -hmm. So our, our conversations are uh, a lot of inbound. Uh, we actually have a partnership with Microsoft, so we're the official infrastructures tool of Microsoft Founders Hub, which is a, a place for founders to get onto the cloud, get lots of different deals, and get some mentorship and direction. Um, so we're the tool that they recommend for managing infrastructure on Azure. So we have a lot of customers kind of come through that pipeline, and our platforms fairly powerful. And so what we generally do during these demos and during these initial conversations, just kind of quickly show them like you can draw something, get something in the cloud. And then we talk about what their current pains are. And so we see a couple of different inflection points of when they're starting to consider like an operational tool or hiring ops. And so we kind of hone in on that depending on where they're at. So sometimes it's very much compliance, right? And they're considering, do I go buy something like Vanta, which tells me I'm not compliant, then I have to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. That sucks, <laughs> right? Or are they to the point where they're already seeing costs spiral out of control? Uh, and so then we kind of fine tune our pitch and conversation based off of like one of these things that have caused them to start looking for a change in the way they manage the cloud. And how do they measure whether this is, I mean, they're going to get an ROI on this investment. 
Yeah. So for the earlier stage companies, it's the ability to push out that operations higher, right? So if you look right. at an ops person with some some serious tenure, you're talking 180 to 300K a year all in, right? And if we can push out that higher a few years, um, that's usually what they're looking at today. So they can spend more money on engineers that are working on the product versus engineers that are supporting their engineering team. Um, so that's kind of the main ROI that we kind of uh, target today is like reducing that headcount. Okay, makes a lot of sense. What are some of the major trends in terms of these early stage startups right now and, and how they're developing their platforms compared to, you know, what was best practices uh, a year or two ago and, you know, where's it at now and where's it going to go in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think what, what's really interesting was really surprising to us is, you know, with the teams that we've worked with in the past, there's been a lot of migrations, right? I, I as a consultant, migrating companies off of platforms like Heroku and and uh, uh, Vercel or Render or something like that. Um, but even in like data centers, like doing data center migrations and migrating people to VMs to the cloud, um, I've generally seen like a pretty spread out set of use cases for their apps, like people running a little bit of serverless, a little bit of stuff on Kubernetes or containerized and like ECS or Nomad or something like that. But there's a surprising amount of customers that we have today that are looking to get into Kubernetes for the first time. Uh, and so that's actually a pretty, I think, exciting trend. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Kubernetes fanboy, so I will, mm -hmm. I will say that up front. But like the reason why I think that's an exciting trend is not because it's a exciting new piece of technology that's nice and shiny. It's that I think teams are starting to see the power of Kubernetes for the portable knowledge that you have, right? So they want to come in and use a tool, maybe it's on AWS, maybe it's on GCP, where they can run their workloads, where they don't have to have this future worry of what it's going to be like to migrate again. Right. My applications are running on Kubernetes, and maybe I'm using um, some data store that's running on Kubernetes, or maybe I'm using a Postgres that's running on AWS. It's very easy for me to move my application. It's easy to start doing things like ephemeral environments. Maybe I want to run some of my workloads on Azure, GCP. Maybe I'm getting to the point of my SaaS product that I need to do enterprise style, like on-prem deployments. Boom, if they've got Kubernetes there, I can just run my application there. So it's really interesting to see people kind of shifting that direction and I think it's something like like we support VMs, lambdas, uh, serverless across all the clouds, and Kubernetes. I think like seventy two percent of our customers are running on Kubernetes. So that was actually a big surprise to us that so many people were focusing on that. So that's exciting, and I think that that's going to continue to grow. Like you can see some of these other orchestration tools like in the market, but there is a lot of power to Kubernetes. There's a lot of tooling out there, and so I think that's going to continue to be the way that a lot of people start to move uh, when they're going towards the cloud. Makes sense. Let me take a step back. Uh, imagine you're the, well, you're talking to the the founder of this uh, software st startup, let's call it, a, you know, a SaaS startup. And they're, you know, they've, they've got an idea for an MVP or MSP. Uh, they've done some, some, you know, a little bit of development, but now that somebody's written them a check and they're ready to start scaling that, that MVP to get it to, to market ready. And they, but they're evaluating because there's so many different options in terms of cloud providers and tools. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Founders Hub, AWS has something, you know, an equivalent as to, uh, I'm sure that GCP does as well. What advice would you give them in terms of evaluating the different platforms um, and then moving forward? Yeah. So this is going to sound like a crazy answer, but I'm going to say it anyway. So, um, you know, my go-to for probably the past 10 years has just been to 
go on to AWS as soon as as soon as possible. Like you're joining a company and it's like, okay, we're we're we've got an MVP, we want to run it somewhere. It's like well, let's put it on AWS. Like let's avoid that migration hassle in the future. Get some credits. It's all going to be free. What's interesting um, today is you know I've kind of noticed like across all of the clouds, like there's some services that really shine. So like in particular, like GKE has a great set of features. Um, it is my preferred way to run Kubernetes. Uh, now, unfortunately, my preferred way to run the databases I like are AWS Aurora, right? So like that's that's not great for network traffic, right? But what is really interesting is OpenAI's partnership with Azure, right? Like that's mm -hmm. that's that's where you can run it, right? And so Azure does have a massive pool of credits um, if you go through Founders Hub. And this is not a Founders Hub ad, but there is there's a ton of credits. There's like $120,000 or something like that. And if you can get into AWS Accelerate, like you're going to get another hundred grand there. So um, you know, one of the things that I, I would suggest is if you're going to be running like transactional workloads for your SaaS product, but you also need to do a little bit of AI, I'd probably sign up and try to get into AWS Accelerate and Founders Hub. Run your transactional compute on AWS and run OpenAI there. And you can, mm -hmm. you'll actually get a lot more for the credits that you have um, if, you, if you go that route. Now you can, you know, you can use SageMaker or you can try to run your own model building on AWS using $100,000 of credits there, but now you're going to be blowing through a ton of model building credits, right? Or a ton of credits on model building. So um, I think you can kind of double dip there. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's what I'd suggest today. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's, it's, that's some good advice. Um, and I, I think it's a... You know, the, the debate can go on and on and on, but sooner or later you've got to make a decision and, and, and move forward. Uh, what do you, what advice would you give? And this really isn't related to security, but, um, but it's interesting because you're on the startup conversation. In terms of expense projections specifically for the cloud platforms, I mean, what are the key things that um, a founder should be looking at for projecting expenses? Yeah, I think this is this is an interesting one. So when you look around, um, when you look around our industry, there are a whole host of products that are band aids for band aid solutions to problems that we've created, mm -hmm. right? Like, why are there four hundred logging tools? Like, there doesn't need to be four hundred logging tools. And I think the current incarnation of that is 10, 20, 30 different cost management tools out there. This is interesting because the cloud isn't increasing their prices every year. They're cutting their prices. So right. why are there so many tools? It's because people don't know how to provision stuff, right? We see this frequently. We even see this on our own team sometimes. Uh, somebody will be like, okay, we're launching a new service, uh, putting it in this cluster, and they spin up, you know, they set the auto scaling to 20 nodes, and they they don't right size the instances, right? And so we're paying mm -hmm. for a ton of compute that we're not using, right? And so I think that is probably one of the easy places to kind of target is making sure that your the compute instances are the right size. Uh, and that's a hard thing to do. Um, it's a bit easier in Kubernetes because like you have node groups and you can roll those different groups. But when you're talking about your database, like if you get it wrong, like you, you're kind of stuck on it until you're ready to do a migration, right? And so like getting that number right up front, I think is, is harder for some of those stateful services. Um, but that's where we see most of our customers today making poor cost choices isn't just picking the right instance size to get started. Okay. Um, well, let's, you know, again, in your show notes, uh, one of the talking points was that um, you'd written an article called DevOps is bullshit. Okay. So I did, I did, I did, I did write that. I did yeah. write that one. Um, hello, Hacker News. Yeah. Hello, he hello, Reddit. <laughs> so, um, let's talk about that. Yeah. 
Well, the first thing I'll say is I was pleasantly surprised for the first time ever. Hacker News was more positive than the Reddit thread. So uh, that was that was that was a fun one. Um, you know, it was really interesting about that article. It's actually a two parter. There's there's DevOps is bullshit. And then I was invited to write a post on the future of the cloud um, for Microsoft. So there's a there's a follow up to DevOps is bullshit diving in uh, a bit more deeper onto my point, which I think some people got and some people didn't uh, from the article. Uh, and that's that follow up article is called Elephant in the Cloud. So like DevOps is a great idea. And I think it, I think it definitely did work at one point in time, like 2010-ish, when the cloud wasn't complicated, you could do DevOps, right? And the idea of, you know, tearing down those barriers and, you know, you build it, you run it, it made sense when there was like a VM, right? It made sense when you had, you know, your database, you got MySQL and you got a, a couple of nodes that you're running your app on. But now, you know, we're starting to see our apps be composed of more cloud services. That's great, that is great. You might see it as lock-in, but it's less code is less code. Faster time to market. That's what matters to businesses, right? You might right. be sitting around as an engineer saying, well, I really wanted to write that. But guess what? Like we're, we're business people. We got to ship value for business. Like sometimes like our, our needs and wants as hobbyists like don't matter as much. Um, and so what's really interesting with, with DevOps is like where we're at today is, you know, MassDriver, I think, uses 28 AWS services. That's a, that's a lot of stuff to keep in your head. That's a lot of thrashing, right? And so to do DevOps today in the cloud is very hard. If you work at Google, you might not agree with me, but you also have 10,000 ops people. So I'm sorry, your opinion doesn't matter here, <laughs> right? But like when you're a small company, five, 10, 20 engineers, you either have a DevOps person now, right? Or a DevOps team. And now they've become like a choke point for getting stuff out or you're, you're doing DevOps, right? And, and that's where the bullshit is, is like you're either, you're either stuck trying to get stuff through this one central team or you're saying, you know what, 10, 20, 30% of my time where I could be adding business value, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go configure stuff in the cloud, right? And I don't think that the way that we think about DevOps and our engineering necessarily aligns with product managers and their KPIs, right? A product manager at the end of the day wants to sell more. They want to move more. They want more user engagement. And so when it's me sitting around working on a feature and all of a sudden, oh, pop surprise, I need to spend 30% of my time getting a database set up, get an IM set up, get the secrets into vault. I've got to do all this other stuff. The product manager usually doesn't care, mm -hmm. right? Like they want a feature out. You said it was three points, which my team says that's two days. Like, why is it taking longer? It's like, what happens is you pay a lot of attention to the thing that the user can see and the KPI moves up for, and you don't spend as much time on security and cost controls and like the stuff that will matter down the line. And so you get, Okay, I got Postgres configured in Aurora. I got some IAM policies. It might be too many permissions. I don't know, but it works. Whatever, it's in prod. I can close my ticket. I move on, and maybe somebody comes along and right sizes those IAM permissions in the future. Maybe they don't, right? And like that's that's what really feels like bullshit to me. Is like we don't have a great solution. We either use these teams that slow us down, uh, or we are just doing less valuable work as engineers. Um, and so I think that's where the second article, uh, which is the uh, elephant in the cloud talking about bridging this gap, like that number's going down. Like we, we like we, we already don't have a lot of operations professionals on this earth. The last stack overflow survey from 2022 said 8% of software engineers have cloud operations and DevOps experience. That number's down to six in the most recent one. Like it's going down. Like why mm -hmm. is it going down? Well, we're making a lot more engineers today. We're making engineers at five times the volume of any other job in the US right now. In six more years, like one in a hundred US citizens will be a software developer. One in a hundred. 
Yeah, that's nuts. Wow. Right? Wow. Like that's nuts. That's that's from the well, department you know what's, what's of crazy uh, about that. If you contrast that, I mean that's actually really good news. Um I think I mean unless <laughs> they all get replaced by AI because because the the the, the most common job in America is a truck driver, long haul truck driver, right? I mean, this is it's yeah. crazy. And the concern with that is when you have, uh, you know, um, autonomous vehicles, you're going to replace all these, those jobs for, you know, for a big chunk of the, the population. But what you're saying is one in a hundred uh, Americans or very close to that number is a software engineer, in, any engineer or software engineer. Uh, software engineers. That's from that's, the U.S. Bureau of what is it? U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yeah. Um, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But I mean, the scare. There's the scary side of it, which is like, sure. You're, I mean, we're we're getting like boot camps are pretty good, right? And like, mm -hmm. I love the idea of hiring people out of boot camps, especially somebody who's gone through a career change, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea that you've gone and done something for a decade, and you say, you know what, I want to get into software development. Like that shows a shitload of grit. Like, I feel like I can get a lot of, I can get a lot out of that person as, as a business owner. But what's scary is like, again, operations is on the job training. Schools aren't teaching right. it. Very few boot camps teach it. And when they do teach it, it's like, it's very thin, right? It's not, you know, you, you spend 12 weeks deep diving on JavaScript and maybe you spend like a week on like setting something up in Terraform. Like you don't really get deep knowledge there. And so the idea that we have more and more of these systems, more and more things moving to the cloud, everybody's moving to the cloud nowadays, right? Like you see yeah. a lot of there's little bit of repatriation, but for the most part, everybody's trying to get there. Right. Um, and everyone's a software company today. Like, right. Like every company is a software company at some point nowadays. Right. And so like the idea that we're moving so much stuff to the cloud, our data, like our friends and family's data, but we're having a lot less people available to do the security and operations of that software. Like that, that feels like a problem that's looming on the horizon to me. Well, but that's where, Automation, I guess what you would say, and and, and platforms um, similar to to Mass Driver and so on, uh, yeah. you know, come in and, and, and help out, right? I think that's where we, where you're going. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, that's that was one of the main drivers for us starting to build this platform was to be able to get two things: a to get that expertise in people's hands early, like mm -hmm. get them in the cloud in a secure and compliant manner, and then make sure that when your operations team comes on, it's not something that you feel like you have to migrate off of, right? Like it's easy to get up and running on Heroku. You probably have some sort of compliance and security that you're happy with, but as soon as you reach scale or you need to start doing things that doesn't fit into that passes model of the world, like you've got a problem, right? How do you run AI and model building there? How do you do serverless stuff there? Yeah. Right? Like that's that you start to struggle, right? And so now you need to move to the cloud. Well, that's, that's not great for the business, right? To know that they have to move this thing or you have to have two operational uh, processes, one for Heroku and one for what's running on AWS and trying to bridge the networks in between. Like that can be costly to the network, costly to your apps, and it can also be pretty costly for an enterprise plan on Heroku. You, you mentioned security a few times, and I, I would imagine in your role, you have to think about the, the company's physical and cybersecurity. Uh, you have to think about your platform's security as you're building it out, how secure yeah. is it? And then, and then you um, also would probably need to think about any kind of vendor relationships you have. You mentioned you're working with different partners. So, um, you know, and th those are all slightly different kind of uh, perspectives. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you, you, you manage that. Yeah, so it is, we definitely bend over a bit 
backwards. So uh, one of the one of the things that's very different with our platform than many other platforms is we actually never get access to your source code. So that's something that we're very big on. Um, so you don't like log in with GitHub and connect your stuff and then we can just magically deploy for you. We actually, um, we do it through GitHub Actions, like you deploy into, not into Master, you deploy into your account. We're essentially just the scheduler. So we're scheduling work, whether it's on Lambda or on Kubernetes. But one of our big number one goals is not to have access to anybody's source code. I think it's pretty wild how easily we hand off our source code nowadays. Um, mm. Oh, I'm using a new tool. It needs access to my full repo. Approve, right? And it's just like, okay, you're one breach away from everybody having access to a ton of ton of different company source codes. That's one of the main things that we do. Um, the other thing is we've been over absolutely backwards and this is painful for us, but um, we have effectively like, I think the closest thing you can get to an air-gapped VPC, <laughs> which, which sounds silly because it is in the cloud. So, you know, we, we do have root access to a lot of people's cloud accounts. So that is um, something that is on people's minds. So we actually store all of that information in an isolated cloud account. So it's completely cloud, an account isolated from us. So it's not the same account as our main AWS account, separate VPC. Um, and then there's essentially no way in or out uh, on that um, uh, on that VPC except for one AWS service, which I'm not going to mention in case anybody out here is uh, too adventurous. <laughs> but that's it. It's like we have one AWS service that we can send, you know, pro essentially provisioning requests into, saying we want to provision something in somebody's account. And then all of our credentials and everything is stored in this isolated VPC where we pretty much lock everything down. So um, it is top of mind for us. Um, we run all of our infrastructure through NIST CIS. We also go through all of the AWS um, security programs as well, just to make sure that we're following all the best practices there for IAM. And have you gone after or pursued any credentials? Uh, I don't know, I'm talking about like SOC 2 or you know ISO or anything like that. Yeah, we're actually in the process of going through all of that currently to, to prep for, we're um, sponsoring reInvent this year. So we're trying to get all that stuff done for reInvent because I know that's going to be a hot topic or kind of goal with the end of this year is to move up market. So we've been focusing a lot more on startups where we don't necessarily have to have all of our credentials in place. But now as we're starting to move towards more enterprise contracts, it's something that people are requesting. So we're given a lot of uh, provisional information at this point in time. And, and, and how does uh, does your platform, how, how MassDriver, I mean, I think you, you mentioned that you can actually help by putting the right controls in place early on, you actually help that um, or facilitate that journey down the road. Yeah, so the way, so the, way the platform works is um, it's a, uh, essentially a package manager for infrastructure as code at, at the heart of it. And so there's a whole bunch of uh, packages that are in there today. Uh, so our team spends every Friday essentially just finding somebody who knows a service really well, and they essentially build a reference architecture. Uh, and then we consider any SOC 2, uh, HIPAA, NIST, CIS, a few That's other uh, benchmarks yeah, as bugs. Yeah, so if we if we build a Terraform module or a Helm chart and it fails one of those, like we consider that a bug. And we manage just a whole bunch of these packages that are in our package manager. Now, anybody else can come along and also publish packages, public, private, et cetera. So um, that is the main way that we do that today. So we just have somebody that's working on those services. And what's cool is like it covers most of the common, especially early stage startup use cases. So if you're running on Kubernetes using Postgres, whether it's Azure Postgres, Cloud SQL, uh, GCP, or Aurora, um, you're essentially grabbing infrastructure bundles that pass SOC 2, HIPAA, NIST, CIS by default, so you don't have to kind of think of that stuff. Um, and what's really nice for an audit is 
Um, we open source all the code for all those modules. So you're able to share that with your auditor. You can just screenshot your infrastructure. Your infrastructure is correct. Like the diagram's right for the first time ever, right? There's so many right. times you like do something in Terraform and then you like update it in Lucid Charts and you're like, here's here's our network diagram. And it's absolutely not true. Um, we're actually able to provide that as well as like uh, essentially infrastructure resources underlying those components like the subnets, routing tables, et cetera, of a network. Um, so it's a really easy way to also deliver information to your auditors when, when time comes. And then, and what do you do? Because I mean, do you, I, you work remotely or you have, where's where your dev team at and, and how do you manage the security for, for that side of the business? Yeah. So we're hundred percent remote. Uh, I've been remote since 2010, I think. So I'm, I'm OG remote. Um, so we, we are planning to stay remote for life. So. The way we manage this is through the platform. So we 100% dog food mass driver. So um, as somebody who's working on an application, like, you know, we actually want to like make the DevOps part not feel like bullshit to you, right? Yeah. So it's like you can understand how to write software. And then when you need to do some operational stuff, you just grab a bundle out of our package manager, drop it on, connect it. Uh, and when you connect it, like we take care of the IAM principal release privilege, it takes care of all the secrets management behind the scenes, like with the actual software. So you as a software developer at MassDriver really only have to think about the use case you need from the cloud. I need a S3 based data lake. That's really it. A couple of configuration options there that are hyper tuned towards like running a data lake on S3 and hit deploy and the provisioning all happens through our isolated provisioning system. And so all of the compliance, IAM, secrets management is transparently handled just by drawing lines in the platform, essentially the lines between your boxes. All right. Yeah. But I get my, my question was more on, you know, if you've got remote workers, um, you've got your, your dev team is, is working remotely. Um, what do you do? I mean, are there some best practices that you, you follow in terms of your actual company's security? Um, you know, oh, whether I mean, that, you know, whether that oh sorry 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 yeah go ahead I mean yeah yeah sorry yeah so I'm like laptops so we use a we use an open source MDM tool um, so it's pretty much that uh, our developers don't necessarily have access to any of the cloud services um, mm -hmm. so I mean I think I think a few people do so we usually use just like YubiKeys or whatnot for access there but um, the platform is essentially our operations engineers so like when you need something from the cloud like you're getting it from the app so. Mostly what developers have access to is their uh, mass driver account and the source codes for, for mm -hmm. actually making modifications to the system. Uh, and then one of the other features that we have in mass driver is, sorry, I'm not trying to make this a mass driver ad. No, 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 no. Talk, talking you through some of this stuff, but, <laughs> but like this is, this is kind of like one of our principles to engineering is whenever we feel like we're doing something that feels ops-ish, we add it as a feature to the platform. So Makes like sense. as far as like, like auditing, like, okay, like somebody's made changes to let's say our primary database. And we need to see that we keep deployment histories of everything. We keep audit histories so we can see like who saw or accessed. If somebody did, let's say somebody did download a credential for Postgres for some reason, we can actually see that download and do a key rotation. So the, the platform has a lot of our security and compliance built into it. And then we just use that. So like we, we really, really try to like dry up as much of that as possible. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, I'm looking at the, uh, the show notes here and one of the topics kind of sticks out. It's not really security related, or maybe you'll tell me it is, but uh, <laughs> it was how to onboard a solid team of investors during uncertain times. 
Yeah, so we we haven't announced this yet, but um, we yeah we've we've raised a lot of money this year. So um, we're we're still working on our press release for it, but everything's been finalized. So um, it was a rough year to hire or to hire. It was a rough year to hire. Now it's a very easy year to hire. Unfortunately, from from all the layoffs. But um, as far as like bringing on like the right team of investors, I I think you really have to I think do a couple of things, right? So it's it's, it's a year ago was or a year and a half ago it was very easy to go out and, and raise money. Today it's it's a lot more difficult. It's even gotten more difficult since our first raise um, last April. Um, but I think one of the key things nowadays is actually finding one of those operators that one of those like VC operators that has actual experience like in your industry, mm-hmm. uh, and that was one of the keys to our fundraise. So if we rewind back in time to like. 2021 yeah the end of 2021 when we first started mass driver um i pitched 170 investors and i got 170 no's was, was about, were these all individual pitches or was this like yeah. you're gonna go and you're oh yeah be, yeah oh wow that's a- yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm a work i'm a workhorse and i can take a hit so i'm just like i'm like I, you know what i'm like this was something that me and my co-founders were obsessed with, like we were seeing these numbers of like the declining number of people that have operations experience. And this is a problem that's looming on the horizon. We wanted to fix it. And it's, but it's, it's also like hard to convey because everybody looks around like, Oh, all my companies are doing great. It's like, well, they are until you have a security breach and I'm sure you'll buy an Experian plan for everybody. And that's great. But like, we'd like to prevent that from happening in the first place. Right. And so when we were originally fundraising, got 170 no's, um, we eventually kind of stumbled into uh, YC, um, which was great. I think there was some boon there, but even as we're coming out of YC, we had six figures of revenue very, very quickly, um, like substantial six figures of revenue. Um, and we got it so quickly, the VCs wouldn't invest in us. Like these people are nuts. Like it's like, oh, you don't have any money? We're not gonna invest in you. And you're like, oh shit, you got money too quickly? Like we don't trust it. It's like, okay, yeah, my friends, I just got friends writing me checks for 300 grand. That's what it is, VC. So like, it's very hard to like figure out like how to pitch and like how to get somebody that, that A, gets your pitch, B, agrees with the problem and C, sees the value in it, whether there's money there or not. And so, you know, as we're coming out of YC, we, you know, we were, we thought we were on our way to our series A uh, pretty quickly. I mean, we've, we've hit some stumbling blocks and uh, over the year. Um, so there's definitely some some work to do there, but like, we're like, Oh, this is going to be easy. We've got 300, 400 K in revenue and we've been in business for 12 weeks. Like that seems pretty nuts. Right. And so mm. VCs were still, pa- VCs were still passing and we're like, what, what do we do? Like, this is insane. Like when we, when we didn't have customers, they told us we needed customers. Now we have customers. They don't trust where they're coming from. Right. How, how, so big, what, how big of a pool of customers did you have at that point? And because I'm just thinking about a concern to be as, yeah, if you've got two customers that are bringing in that revenue, you've got all your eggs in two baskets, right? I mean, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah so. Yeah, I think we had about, I think our ACV was sitting around like $72,000 at that point in time. So it was, it was okay. you know, it was, it was a handful of customers. Um, but uh, what really changed it was um, two things. So one, we're in YC. So like, we're lucky, like we have access to some of the assets in YC and YC has this rating platform for you actually see like YC's internal ratings of investors. And so it's like how startups perceive these investors. And so we decided, you know, what we want to do is we want to go in and find somebody who has experience in this space and works well with founders, uh, because this is, this is going to be a long road, right? Like we're not building a simple tool where there's one form and we go sell it to a thousand sales teams. We're good to go. Like we're building an operations platform. It's, it's heavy lifting. It's going to take a long time. And what we started to do is start talking to, 
angels and VCs that had worked in the operations space before. So, you know, we have people like Tom Preston Warner of GitHub, right? Like he's seen the problem before he understands it. And even at the scale of GitHub, like his seen huge. problems yeah. exist. Um, brought in um, some ex Yahoo um, early SREs from Netflix. And so like that was the real change was like starting to target these people that knew the problem. They knew how hard operations is because a lot of people look around and go, oh, everybody's doing DevOps. Everybody seems to be super happy with it. How are you guys going to compete with Terraform? And it's like, okay, like that's a weird question. Um, but but that was really it was like trying to just find those people that truly got our space. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you're fundraising, one of the things is like you you go around and you kind of look at all like the vanity VC funds, the ones that everybody knows, right? And what you're really getting there a lot of times is you're talking to probably not one of the decision makers of who's going to actually do the investment. You're probably talking to maybe a lower analyst. Most of these people are like fresh out of business school, right? And so it's harder to sell them on an idea they just completely don't understand if they're not just seeing like well, what you assume is rocketing revenue. But apparently when you have rocketing revenue, that's a problem too. So um, really just finding those people that understand, understand right? And what's interesting with that is, is it also changes the dynamic of it when you go into the pitch, right? If you go roll into A16Z and you're like, hey, would love to tell you about my thing and get some of your money, right? There's like, a, so does everybody else, right? But when I email somebody and I say, hey, I really appreciate your fund. I look for your thesis. Like here's five points in your investment thesis that align with what we're doing. I see that you worked at Yahoo for three years. Like after, like you've shown that you've put in the research on that person that you're interested in them as a business partner, because that's what they're going to be, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I didn't really get when I first started doing this is like, oh, these people just throw money around, right? Like they're, you're going to be working with them for a decade, right? And so showing that, you know, you have the passion and interest to put in the effort to learn about them, to tell them why they're going to be a good fit and a help to the business, I think changes kind of the relationship as well. Like I'm not just seeing you as a source of money. I'm seeing you as a source of value beyond just the check that you can write. Uh, and I think that's really the key thing to getting those great investors. And um, the lead on our next round, which I also can't mention because we haven't actually done the PR yet, um, was very similar. They're in a uh, space where they typically um, invest in uh, antiquated businesses, farming, pharma, agriculture, et cetera. And what they were looking for was their first SaaS product that could help those companies, like essentially, like, you know, rise right. all these tides. And so that was a really good fit for us. Is like, okay, like we're like we're your first SaaS. Like that's awesome to hear. Like that's super exciting that that, that we're the thing you decided to invest in first. And to be able to see a bunch of industries that I'm also passionate about. I was a healthcare information systems and HIPAA security analyst before I switched into uh, full software. And so to know that I'm going to be a part of a portfolio of a lot of companies that are experiencing these problems and be able to help was valuable to me. And I think it's valuable to them. And so um, I'd say just, you know, spend time, like don't just go out and aim for the logos, like look at the people, figure out who you want to talk to. Um, and if you get an analyst on the phone, um, somebody who doesn't have as much experience in the space that you're in, find the person there that does, mm -hmm. right? Like they're, they're not going to, be upset if you ask to speak to maybe a different analyst or you say like, hey, like this is the partner that I think is going to be really good for us. Like once we close this deal with you analysts, right? And kind of call out that partner and why that partner is a good fit for your business. Do a little bit of their work for them and that's gonna go a long way. Um, and so 
I didn't, it wasn't pa many past the 170 before we started getting our yeses. It was about, about 185, 190 was when we, all of a sudden we started hitting our stride and it was because we changed our approach. Like we were just very much, you know, kind of looking at people as people that throw our money and invest in DevOps because it's a hot space. And as soon as we kind of shifted to focusing on them and their expertises, it just started, started getting yeses at that point in time. Well, that's a, a one super motivational, uh, inspirational, but I, amazing advice as well. And um, I think that should be your next article for Reddit or for whatever. I mean, that's a <laughs> no. I mean, it's a hugely important topic, and I, you know, you, you could burn so much time and energy and resources just going out and doing these 170 pitches, and that, and that, you know, how do you keep that staying positive and keep going through that. It's hard. Um, it's very and, and hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, man. it's funny too, because like NYC. I'm going straight they, to they the bar, man. I'm going to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Just like... yeah. Oh, yeah. There was, there, was a, there was a tad bit of that. Um, yeah. But it's funny because like, because NYC, like they talk about this, right? They're like, you know, you got you to remember like these investors are people too. But the problem is, is like everybody's just there's a bit of a spray and pray everywhere. Like from the, v right. the VC side, like they're doing outreach through their analysts. You're just spraying everybody. And I think people tend to just start getting no's and they, and they get from this point where it's like, maybe they were looking at these people as people. And now they've gotten so many no's that they're starting to get a little frustrated. Like they're not people, there's money bags. Like they don't get my business. Like, I think you kind of build up an animosity for the process. Hmm. And I think that's, that's where it starts to happen. And I saw that in a lot of my, our batch mates where it's like, oh, this, this effing VC or this guy's a bastard. And it's like, dude, he's not a bastard. He, he gets 400 people emailing him a day asking him for money. Right. Like, right. like, like, right. like, and that, that, like keeping that in your head while you're trying to pitch these people, like they've got a lot of stuff going on. Everyone's asking them for money, like make a good case from the outset as to why they, not their company, not their fund, that VC is a good fit for your business. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, what you said earlier about finding people who have experience in that space so they get it. Otherwise, you spend so much time trying to explain to them something that they're probably not going to, you know, just intuitively grasp. And yeah. if, if they've been in that role before and they're like, oh, my God, this could have saved me so much time, energy and money, you know, so uh, then they get it right. They understand yeah. the problem that you're trying to solve. Well, hey, the, um, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Keep going. I was like, yeah, well, just uh, if, if we got time for a very quick story, one of the one of the best pitches I ever had was um, I like, again, I was kind of looking for people that had operations experience, had been in networking data centers, um, and I had booked a meeting with this VC and he had used his personal email address. And so when I'm going into the call, I'm looking at my calendar, I see Corey slash this person's name, and I see the email address and I'm like, I don't recognize this person. And so my thought was, oh, it's a sales call. And so I walk, I walk into this pitch. I mean, it's always a sales call. Everything's a sales call. This is a sales call. Like it's all a sales call when you're a founder, right? But um, you're always pitching. And so like, but I was just, it was five o'clock. I was fucking just spent. I go into this, uh, what I think is a sales call. And as soon as I see the guy's face, I recognize them. I just think, oh shit, I am not prepared to do a VC pitch right now. Like I'm, I've got my demo up. I've just, I'm in the mindset of talking about my software and I just, I look him in the eyes. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I was like, I thought this was a sales call. I was like, at the end of the day, I'm like, can I just, can I just give you my sales demo? And he was like, absolutely. And so we literally just jumped into the software and I just started showing him how it worked. And like, 
we just vibed very quickly because he was like, this was so hard in like data centers. It's like, yeah, exactly. It was so hard then. It's so hard. It's still hard to do. Like, I got to figure out this cloud. I got to figure out some Terraform. Got to figure out all these like tertiary services like I am and everything else. And like, now I can just draw stuff. And so like, that was, that was my favorite pitch. It was my fastest close. Uh, uh, it was closed after one call. It wasn't two or three calls talking to a bunch of people. It was literally, I just showed the product and talked about it. And I was excited. Like I was doing a sales pitch. And so, um, but that was it. It's like that wouldn't have awesome. worked with that wouldn't have worked with a fresh MBA, right? No, no, no. Great, great pivot there. And uh, so, so let me ask you last question here. What is the process when you're talking to prospective customers in terms of uh, you know giving them either a demo or a trial? Do this or some type type of POC process? Uh, and then when they decide to move forward, how long does it take to to kind of onboard new customers? Yeah, so we're still extremely hands-on with our customers right now. So we actually, we aren't really taking large enterprise customers today just because like we, we spend so much time. And the reason we're doing this is because we're working on a lot of tooling to automate a lot of the onboarding processes, right? So we have a lot of people that might be coming from something like Heroku or maybe they're using Supabase or using something for the Postgres and they need to move their data. Right. So we're working on tooling to be able to do like synchronous replication for Postgres into the platform. But even if you're not coming from a pass, we have a lot of customers that are like, hey, I've got some stuff set up on AWS and like we have no like faith in it. Mm. We don't know if it's secure. We don't know if it's compliant. Like we don't know. Like we just want to just get rid of everything. But like we're afraid of moving like the data part, right? Like right. that's what everybody, the stateless stuff's always easy. It's the data that's hard. And so um, we're still very, very hands-on because we're building out a lot of that functionality. So we actually do a lot of the data migrations for people today. So it really depends on how quickly the business wants to move. So, I mean, we've had companies get fully migrated in less than an hour, right? With less data. Um, we have other companies, it's like they're in. They've been on the platform for three months and they've moved all their stateless stuff, but their databases are still running elsewhere because they're not ready to like figure out how to do a migration. Um, particularly if one customer's like two petabytes of data and they're like, this is going to be like, like it's, mm. it's scary. Uh, right. Um, and then we have companies that are doing like regional expansions, right? So they're trying to get into the EU. Mm -hmm. Um, and so those might take a couple of days, but effectively like our biggest hurdles today, which is there's another one of these things that's just very surprising. It's funny. It's like, I've been in the operations space for such a long time that I forget that everybody else isn't a DevOps expert, right? We all say that we are, but like, it, it's actually, you know, uh, far and few between. And so our biggest hurdle today, which was surprising is the number of developers that still don't know how to use Docker. Like our, that is like the one thing for our platform is like, we're completely Docker based, whether it's Lambda's VMs running on Kubernetes, everything's Docker based. And so we were not ready for people just not knowing how to dockerize their apps or not having their apps dockerized. So um, we're doing a lot of work there right now. So we started doing webinars on how to dockerize, putting together tutorial videos. Um, we're working on some tooling as well to essentially like build people's containers using like Heroku build packs, like that, that, that technology, just so people don't have to go invest in like dockerizing their apps. Um, but um, that's kind of our biggest hurdle today. And that's still why we, we handhold people. It's like, we, we might see like a weird old Java app coming in where they got to figure out like which version and how to configure it, whatnot. And so um, we do a lot of help there. Excellent. Well, Hey, uh, do you go to any industry events or, you know, if, if people wanted to find out more uh, about mass driver and possibly connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, yeah, I'm Corey, no E O Daniel on everything. Um, if you, are searching for me and you find me in a football jersey, 
That is a football player named Corey O'Daniel. That is not me. Uh, we are two very different. We are two very, very different people. Um, but I outrank him in SEO. So there's that. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. Uh, Mass Driver is, yeah, it's, it's almost Mass Driver or Mass Driver Cloud everywhere. I think we're Mass Driver Cloud on GitHub, Mass Driver on Twitter. Uh, domain is MassDriver.cloud. Um, somebody else owns MassDriver.com. But um, yeah, so Mass Driver and Corey Daniel everywhere. We do go to a lot of industry events, uh, mostly programming language conferences, but um, we are sponsoring reInvent this year. So uh, swing by the booth. Uh, I think our swag is going to be pretty excellent. So um, free stuff's always nice. Um, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Um, awesome. We also have uh, we also have like our webinars. So if anybody is interested and wants to attend some webinars, um, we tend to do our webinars to be very industry focused rather than like necessarily our platform. So massdriver.cloud slash webinars, we got a number of them up right now, I think like six or seven. Um, so we do one of those every week. And then we also do some office hours as well for uh, customers and non-customers. So um, I can share the, the link to that as well. Awesome. I'll put links to the uh, to your to your your homepage and to the webinar page if I can find it in the show notes. And uh, hey, Corey, really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks for bearing through, you know, with us through the wait, the 104 degree temperature that you have there. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great talking with you, man. Yeah, thanks so much. And I'm really glad you can't hear my fan because I've needed it on. <laughs> I can't. Maybe I have a problem. Hopefully the recording platform didn't hear it either. So uh, we'll find out here uh, shortly. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Take well, care, thanks for too. having me. Yeah. All right. So I'll hit stop.